0: Talking Feds is sponsored by our friends at Total Wine & More, rewarding curious connoisseurs with a wondrous selection of wine, spirits, and beers.
1: Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government, law, and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Litman. We are closing out this year with two special episodes on the current straits and 2022 prospects for the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. As you'll hear next week, the Dems, somewhat incredibly after the outrages of the Trump presidency, find themselves behind the eight ball distinct underdogs going into the 2022 midterms. But the Republican Party, whom we take up today, in many ways has an even more severe existential problem, which is the stranglehold that the former president continues to have around the party's neck and the unquestioning loyalty that the party leadership seems all too willing to give him. That Trumpian core has all but totally displaced the former Republican Party, which now stands for nothing discernible other than Trump's raging ego and his sense of grievance about the last election. To discuss the stakes within the party and whether the party even can survive in some recognizable form, we welcome today three great guests all of whom have served in the highest reaches of Republican governments and all of whom are longtime stalwarts of the party. And they are Bill Kristol. He is currently the founder and director of Defending Democracy Together and the host of the highly regarded video series and podcast, Conversations with Bill Kristol. Logically enough, he served in senior positions in the Reagan, George H.W. Bush administrations and was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and Harvard. He was one of the founders of the influential conservative magazine, The Weekly Standard, and is currently an editor-at-large of The Bulwark. Thank you, as always, Bill Kristol, for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Michael Steele, a member of the Bipartisan Policy Center's Board of Directors and a political analyst for MSNBC, And the host of the Michael Steele podcast. Everyone's got one. He's the former chair of the RNC, of course, but as a result of his opposition to then-President Trump, he became in 2020 a senior advisor to the Lincoln Project. Previously, he served as lieutenant governor of Maryland, the first African-American to be elected to statewide office in that state. Thanks very much, Michael Steele, for returning to Talking Feds for this special episode. Absolutely. Great to be here. And Governor Christy Todd Whitman. She's now the president of the Whitman Strategy Group, a consulting firm that specializes in energy and environmental issues. She served in the cabinet of President George W. Bush as administrator of the EPA and was the 50th governor of the state of New Jersey and its first woman governor from 1994 until 2001. She is the author of the New York Times bestseller called It's My Party Too, published in January of 2005. It's her first visit to Talking Feds. Thank you very much for joining Governor Whitman. Good to be with you. Happy to do it. So I think we should start here. Is there still a Republican party? And if so, how would you define it? Well, I'll start with
0: that. As uh, the former chairman, I kind of have a sort of a hankering in the heart for the old GOP. I've served as a county chairman, state chairman, national chairman. And so been in that room. And today I kind of look at myself more or less as a Motel Six. Republican, you know, someone's got to keep the lights on (laughs) just in case somebody shows back up, want to come back in. But I think the party is that certainly that Bill and I have worked in and Governor Whitman has served has changed. is dramatically different. And I would probably say in large measure disappeared. So what we're, I think, really looking at now is what do you do with the remnants of this party? Does it become a seedbed for a future effort? Do you walk away from it? And I think that's a lot of the conversation that you see going on in a lot of Republican circles right now is, is this really worth the fight of keeping it and trying to revitalize it? Or do we just let it go and do something different?
2: Well, I would just add to that, that I agree with Michael that it's not the Republican Party anymore, certainly not the one with which I grew up. It's now really a cult, a Donald Trump cult. And that was made clear in uh, 2020, 2019, when they didn't even adopt a platform for the party to say what it believed in. It was whatever Donald Trump says you believe in, that's what you believe in. But if you look at at what's happened nationwide, for the first time in our history, 50% of registered voters are registered independent or unaffiliated. That's never happened before. And a lot of those are Republicans who just, this is not the party that they have supported in the past. The Restore America movement, with which I've been very involved, is, and it's interesting what's happened. We focused and started as 150 Republicans, former office holders, senators, congresspeople, governors at all levels. And Mike, you're part of this. And Bill, yeah. we talk all the time on this. But we started by trying to get the Republican Party with the idea we wanted the Republican Party back to the center because the country does better with a center left and a center right party than it does with the two extremes. We, we're going to focus just on Republicans. But really, we've decided we just need centrists. And so we need to support those on the other side of the aisle who are running against extreme Republicans and who are centrists. And so we're working both ways. We do want to get the Republican Party back to the one that Mike chaired. But on the other hand, we have to recognize that right now we just need people who are going to Respect the Constitution and the rule of law, push back against the big lie, and recognize that January sixth was not just another regular old tourist visit to the Capitol.
3: I would just add two footnotes really, both under the category, I suppose the heading of wishing doesn't make it so, as we all know on this podcast. And in case we forgot it, we've been reminded of this in the last few years uh, by with hard experience. And the first is that life would be a lot easier for Republicans like us if uh, Trump had been an electoral disaster, if Trumpism had dragged down the Republican Party, if they had lost, you know, 20 House seats in, in 2020, along with Trump losing the general election, uh, they did lose the Senate, but very barely. The problem is, though, I think ultimately it's a very bad path politically for the Republican Party. Short term, Kevin McCarthy thinks he's going to be speaker, Maybe. And he thinks he's managed to hold it all together by accommodating Trump in pretty spineless and pretty contemptible ways, I would say. But, you know, he's done what he felt he has to do. Mitch McConnell might become majority leader and Republicans could win the presidency in 2024. So they do not think, I'm just leaving aside the merits of this and what longer term arguments we're to make. They do not think they are necessarily going down the twos because of the allegiance to or tolerance of or excusing of Trump. One moment I think a lot of us thought that might change was after January 6th, uh, and it now hasn't. And in that respect, we're in almost worse shape as a democracy than we were before then, because we hadn't tested the proposition that one of our two major parties would actually put up with something like January 6th. Unfortunately, I think we've now kind of tested it. The other thing I would say is I stayed with the Republican Party for most of Trump's term. And as Christine and Michael know, we all worked together on this, tried to recruit people, support good people in primaries, recruit people to run against Trump, because it's important to have two sound parties in the country. Now I think people have to make their own different decisions, probably based on where they live and the politics of their own state, their own district in the short term about how to strengthen democracy. In some cases, it will be supporting a good Republican against an anti-democratic Republican. In some cases, there'll be a tough call about a not so good, but not so terrible Republican (laughs) against a terrible Republican. In many places, there'll be, I think, the need to support. A sensible Democrat against a Trumpy Republican, and in some cases, maybe to intervene earlier to the degree one can to help sensible Democrats win primaries. So we have a better choice. So I think it's a very complex, and I don't say this just as a matter of political tactics, almost as a matter of moral judgment. It's not always obvious what exactly the right thing to do is in any case, but I very much agree with what Governor Whitman said at the end that strengthening the forces of moderation and commitment to democracy is the key. There can be some tactical differences on how to do that, but that's the key task for the next couple of years.
1: It really is complicated political. You know, we're doing two year end episodes, one on the Democratic Party. And I think if the Republican Party is almost an existential crisis, the Democrats certainly have a political one. And the great irony is the wrong word, really, sort of galling fact is that in Vegas odds, the Trump Republicans are, in fact, as you mentioned, a McCarthy position to take at least one house back in 2022. And who knows about 2024? Maybe just a quick follow up having to do with Trump himself, whom everyone's mentioned, is the problem as you see it 50 percent, 75 percent, 99 percent Trump if he were vaporized painlessly?
2: Uh, Why painlessly?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Would everything be basically okay, or have we crossed a a divide so that the problems would persist?
2: I think the problems would persist. I don't think they're going to go away. They wouldn't have as much focus without Donald Trump there. But he's unleashed feelings in this country that we never used to act upon, shall I put it that way? And he's made it okay to be racist. He's made it okay to ignore subpoenas. He's made it okay to just disregard the Constitution. And that's not going to change, I don't believe. But without him there, there won't be the same kind of passion. The passion will be there, it just won't be as organized.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think In answer to the question, have we crossed the great divide? You know, we have not only crossed the Rubicon, (laughs) we have (laughs) back flooded that bad boy. It's going to be hard to go back the other way. We're just on a path right now as a country that calls to mind for me two essential realities that animate what Governor Whitman said. One is, and it goes back to the first part of our conversation, Throughout the last five or six years, Republicans from Trump on down to Boebert and others have never been held accountable for what they've said or done. And to the extent that the country, this is point number two, doesn't hold them accountable, Republicans take the House next year, maybe even the Senate, and likely in a very, very strong position to win in 2024. Because I fundamentally believe the country doesn't take this as serious as they claim. To the governor's point, they are comfortable with this. He unleashed these feelings. Trump did. It's like if you remember as a child, the first time you got to move from the kids' table to the adult table, and when you got there, and the first time you said something out of line, right? Your grandma hauled off and smacked you and said, "Boy, you know that's not how we. No, get back over there to that table, right? <laughs> that's not happening." These folks are now finding themselves in a space where they are trying to overturn elections, rig future elections, crapping all over the Constitution and the various institutions that support the foundations of this great democracy, stealing the narrative of individuals like Hamilton, for God's sake, and Jefferson, and appropriating them in the context of white nationalism and all of that crazy. And no one is holding them accountable. Yeah. The governor, Bill, and I, we're out here. It's like standing in the middle of a hurricane and trying to scream for folks to come to safety, right? They're not necessarily going to hear you. And so the reality is everyone has to decide for themselves whether or not they're prepared to hold Republicans accountable for what they are doing, the backsliding, the lying, and so forth. Or 2025, Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, and I think probably Jim Jordan over Kevin McCarthy, because I think Trump is just egging McCarthy on. Whoever it is running the House, what do you think America looks like, people? Where do you think we go if we got that close in 2021, January 6th, to seeing the government collapse? What do you think happens when you've got two sycophants in the House and the Senate and a president who's on the war path for revenge.
1: How do you analyze this? The governor mentioned forces have been unleashed. And the thing that's distinctive, Trump is a psyche unto himself, and that path lies madness to try to analyze. But the other Republican leaders, I think of Purdue, who recast himself as a full-fledged Trumpian in order to run for governor, I think it's fair to say that all of them all but a couple, understand that they're completely in the service of a big lie. And yet, sometimes you hear they're afraid of Donald Trump. Other times you hear they're afraid of the base. You have 60% of self-identified Republicans, including professionals and not simply ragtag terrorist types, who honestly do believe, if we're to credit the polls that say the election was stolen, Are they the driving force and the cadre of sycophantic members of Congress are just afraid to cross them? Or are they somehow just hoodwinked and it all goes up the one level to Trump and maybe a couple other people?
3: I I guess I would say maybe there are three levels and obviously it's a chicken and egg problem in a way. Trump was uniquely... Good demagogue, I think, and, and successful one. Very unusual in American history. Demagogues have become governors and senators and caused a lot of damage, but they haven't become president, at least not in modern times. Once you're president for four years doing that, this I think, Governor Whitman's point was so important that you you unleash a lot of things that, to use another metaphor, the toothpaste is out of the tube. It's hard to put it back in. People kind of enjoy indulging things that they once would have said maybe quietly in a bar at 1130 at night to two friends, but wouldn't think it's appropriate to say or to do publicly. And that matters. People have whatever prejudices and anxieties and unhappy feelings that they have. That's not going to change as long as life is the way it is. But usually in our country, we've done a decent job maybe except on race, and and keeping them sort of suppressed, at least in public life. So once that's out, it's a little hard to know how that gets back in. So Trump was important. The base is now riled up, so it will punish people who go against it. You've seen that, for example, on the vaccine stuff, where I think it is really worrisome how much craziness there is out there. And that's not really coming from Trump particularly. I mean, he unleashed it, and he doesn't stop it. He does not speak that much about the vaccine. If anything, he was tempted for a while to take credit for it, which would have been intelligent, I think, or the school board stuff, right? I mean, there are provocateurs helping this along, but the degree to which it's now spontaneously happening is actually bad. Mm -hmm. I would prefer it if there were some clever people up top manipulating people, but then if you deal with the clever people up top.
2: Right, right.
3: But the third thing I would say is the elites, the degree of cowardice and rationalization and ambition, thats all which have conspired to let people rationalize going along with Trump, accommodating him, maybe not just accommodating him, but produce a good example, but actually going out of your way to embrace some of that. Because you know what? You get to be a U.S. senator instead of being a guy who's out of office or a governor in this case, I guess. And maybe you have a national future even, and you can then navigate the Trump establishment wings of the party. And you just had 20 or 30 million people who were loyal to him. I still think we would have a much more manageable problem than we have now with the leadership of an entire party, the bulk of the leadership at all levels going along with and enabling this. That's what makes this a uniquely dangerous moment. Trump and the party and the donors and a lot of the business establishment and others and the populace all now in harmony, basically.
0: Yeah, I think. Bill put his finger on the unfortunate pulse of all of this, and I could not agree more. And it really ties into the accountability piece for me, why that class of Republicans have been, and I'll use the term, successful in achieving what they've achieved. They're crowing around the Congress because they know, they firmly know that this time in 2023, there's a whole nother landscape. When you get to December of 2023, you had a full year of McCarthy or whomever as speaker and the uh, pushback on Biden's program. The investigations into Hunter will be afoot. You probably will have seen emanate from the House several bills to impeach President Biden. Oh, they, these guys, they're cock crowing like crazy right now. I hear it when I talk to some of them. You can feel it. And again, that's because they are reinforcing each other. And I no longer buy, just for the record, this idea of the hapless victims and, oh, the party ignored these folks and now they feel left out and, yeah. and this is the No, nah, like I said, you crossed the Rubicon. You've gone that point now where you own this. You own all of it. And there's no sympathy that I'm affording to anyone particularly if they are an elected official with an R behind their names that have been perpetuating the fakery, the audits and the racism, because for them, it's a grift. And I think Dan Crenshaw laid that out very clearly in his public comments about how he saw what's going on inside the GOP caucus. So the accountability piece ties, I think, directly into what Bill said, and, and it's an important element of why you see the behavior you see.
2: That's just shocking that none of these people are being held accountable the way they should for their flagrant disregard of things like subpoenas and, and the truth, period, and the Constitution. The only thing that gives me some hope was this last electoral cycle with the two gubernatorial elections, because here in New Jersey, Jack Cicurelli could have won. I've known him for a long time. He was a centrist. He was very much a, a centrist, a fiscally conservative, socially open to changes and moderate. And he decided to fully embrace Trump. And he attended that Stop the Steel rally and then tried to pretend he didn't know it was the Stop the Steel rally, which didn't go down too well. That was a little hard for anybody to take. But he totally embraced him, and that didn't work out. He could have won. I mean, everybody keeps citing, well, there were a million more registered Democrats than Republicans. True, but when I ran, which was the first time an incumbent governor had been defeated in a general election. The Democrats had a nice substantial cushion, but they just don't turn out in these by-elections the way they should. And the money difference was about the same, and I was able to win. He could have won, but he couldn't bring those dissident Republicans, the centrist Republicans, who were troubled by Trump. And they might have agreed with the issues he was bringing up, which is why I think Youngkin did so well, Mm -hmm. because he spoke to the issues. And people like Trump or hate Trump— They agree that we should have called out China. They see his strength in what he attacked. He was reflecting their concerns. Never mind he didn't really address any of them either in the right way, I would argue, with the sanctions, which sanctions he chose to put on China. It was just the fact that he did it. And Youngkin was able to talk to the issues that mattered to the people, but not embrace the man. And he was able to win.
1: I 100 percent agree, but very unusual for it to sort of straddle as he did. And maybe it's a template for how to approach Trump, because to Michael's point, there are some people who've tried to be brave, but a lot of them have actually found themselves having been primaried or exiled from the party. Let me ask, without asking you to name names, I assume some of these people are your friends and people you've known for years. You must have had conversations, no, where you, you know, say in private and confidence, come on, you know, this is all a lie, right? This was what was vivid about, I thought, the display of the emails or the texts by the January 6th committee. It really brought home that notwithstanding their public posturing, of course, the Republicans, even the most polarizing, know the facts. So, Is it your conviction, let me put it that way, that the people who have gone in 100 percent understand they've gone in in the service of a lie? They're not dumb. Yeah. Yeah.
2: They have to know that's what they've done. They know it's a lie. They know that they should stand up. And, you know, it's one of those things where, yes, of course, they're all afraid. The base votes. That's the difference. Unfortunately, up until now. The people in the middle have not taken the job of voting terribly seriously. I mean, up until recently, the average voter turnout in primaries was 10%. That meant you had the most partisan and they tended to be on the extremes. And then you got to the general elections and people said, Pox on both your houses, I'm out of here. We haven't been voting. We haven't taken our democracy seriously. People don't understand how fragile it is. And what I believe we're in the most dangerous position now for the future of this country as we've ever been. I mean, we've been in worse times. I know that. I know my history. But on the other hand, we've never had someone who was the president so actively undermining the Constitution, respect for the governmental institutions, respect for the rule of law. That's what's really changed. And people have got to start taking it very seriously.
0: Yeah, I hear some of the folks that I've talked to about it. There's a lot of rationalizing going
2: on. Oh, yeah.
0: Okay, let's just start there. I think all three of us have had conversations with people. You're just sitting there going, dude, you're killing me with the rational You're just <laughs> killing me. I'm sorry. I am just having a hard time following. But there is a lot of rationalization going on. And the rationalization, particularly for the old line Republicans who have capitulated, given in, I would say given up, because it's just easy to put the hands up and go no mas and kind of follow the course of things has been around the policy issues. So as Governor Whitman just noted, with respect to China, that reflection of saying to China and presenting the breast-beating kind of macho man front face of the United States against China when there was this feeling of China taking our lunch in many cases. A lot of these elected officials like that it kind of added a little notch to their political spine. And that was reinforced by a public who, quite honestly, don't know exactly how the, the process works with China. You say to them, you don't like the Chinese, but you know everything you have in your house. <laughs> 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 they put in there, <laughs> paid for, right, from them. They made it. So there, there are these aspects. But the other part of it, which then got really interesting was then you would say, well, okay, I understand China. How do you rationalize Russia? Because we were the party that made it very clear, going back to Reagan, where the lines were drawn. And you begin when you start to push in and press into those questions to, again, the point, a party with no platform. So what do you say? How do you declare what we're for, what we're against, when you can't point to it and say, see, this is what we are right here? and i think that's where the rationalizations begin to break down and they want to change the subject after that then it falls into the well you know i'm afraid of getting primary then it was better to have me in this seat than a trump right person. Right, right and i'm yeah, like yeah. but dude you're no better than the trump person at this point <laughs>
1: yeah. all right it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor total wine and more Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages.
4: Thanks, Harry. In today's Spirited Debate, we whip through the whiskeys to find out the difference between the three main types, scotch, bourbon, and rye. Whiskey, spelled without an E, is produced in Scotland and Canada, whereas whiskey spelled with an E means it's produced in the U.S. and Ireland and includes scotch, bourbon, and rye. It's these grains that help define which type of whiskey it will become before it eventually lands among the thousands of bottles on the shelves at your local Total Wine & More. Now, let's talk about scotch. Scotch is typically made from malted barley blended with other grains, and that helps give it a little bit of a bite, making it more of an acquired taste. Bourbon must be made from at least 51% corn, produced in the U.S. and aged in new charred oak barrels. The oat gives this brown liquid its signature sweet flavor. And then there's rye, which must be made from at least, yep, you guessed it, 51% rye. Rye is a type of grass in the wheat family that has a spicy, edgier flavor, adding a little extra kick you may not find in a bourbon. For a true test of bourbon versus rye, we recommend you pop into Total Wine, maybe grab a bottle of scotch while you're here. But to really get to know the differences in scotch, bourbon, and rye, Start by talking to the guides at Total Wine and More who are more than happy to talk day or night about whiskey with or without an E.
1: And remember,
4: always think interesting, drink interesting.
1: Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. So let me ask this. So there is a scenario, I assume, that five years from now, 10 years from now, the Republican Party, the principled conservative group that you guys all came of age with is restored. But it's a little hard to see how, because it has to mean a defeat of the whole Trumpian party. Yes. So it's a question of how do the Republicans, as you know, them prosper other than by taking on in battle and defeating the current dominant
3: wing? Well, some of them, I I mean, you know, this happened fairly suddenly. They were indications and roots before we can look back and see this to this this or that sort of thing that was bubbling up that didn't make it earlier then sort of exploded in the trump years but It has been fairly sudden, and I suppose in theory, therefore, I'm personally somewhat pessimistic about this, but to be fair, it could go away a little more quickly than we think, and that's happened in the past. Things are deeply embedded. Joe McCarthy's dominating the Senate. Republicans are all scared of him in 1953, and by 1955, he's finished. Now we don't have an Eisenhower to deal with him, and we don't have other things, but... Could they overplay their hand? Could there be some of these people who could lose primaries in 2022, whom Trump has endorsed, or they could win primaries and lose general elections, including in states like Ohio and Missouri that are now Republican-ish states. But, you know, if Mandel or Greitens are the nominee, I'm not so certain they defeat sensible Democrats. And so the dynamic could change a little more quickly than we think. I think having underestimated Trump personally, and then Trumpism, and how bad it would get. And I think almost everyone did, for it has now for four or five years. We might be overestimating how sort of permanently this is a feature. (laughs) It doesn't mean it's not only what replaces it necessarily, is going to be great either. It doesn't mean we just go back to some happy, you know, earlier time. But there is something fragile about it.
1: He's always been a minority president.
3: Yeah, so I would say I've always thought the key to it being defeated and either partly fading away, and partly just being confronted and losing, and partly just being marginalized. The key would be a successful Biden administration or the first way that would happen. The easiest way for that to happen would be a successful Biden administration. Could you clue in the Biden administration on that? I made that point to our <laughs> friends in Biden world. But Harry, if you could arrange that with your Democratic friends there, that yeah. they kind of get their act together a little. That would be somewhat right. helpful to us Republicans. Leave aside the Democrats, you know. Yeah,
1: I'll, I'll give them a call right after this. Consider it done. What about the 1-6 committee? Do you see any scenario where if they have a really damning report, it matters a whit in terms of what we're talking about now?
0: I want to go back because I've given a lot of thought to what Bill just said into your question about what this looks like and the timelines and all of that. What I think will happen evolves around efforts that are right currently in place. Bill Crystal, Max Booth, a number of these individuals who are, I think, reemerging as sort of the philosophical reorientation of republicanism, conservatism, without all the labels and branding, but just the philosophy of how we look at government, how we look at communities, how we look at certain policies. That's one piece. The work of a Governor Whitman who is organizing on the ground, who is tapping into a new generation of candidates who are cross-partisan, is the term I like to use, Mm -hmm. as opposed to bipartisan, that she and her efforts are actually sort of retraining the way voters look at candidates and think about policy and think about parties in the context of those candidates. That, to me, is the sweet spot of all of this It's almost as if it doesn't matter whether there's a, quote, grand old GOP Republican Party. What I think individuals like these two are doing is fertilizing the ground for something else. Now, it could come up within that structure of the current party, and those battles may happen with the elbowing out of Trumpism as people kind of gravitate towards that. But that's not necessary. I don't think, and I'm seeing and hearing a lot of of that among younger voters. Again, Governor Whitman's already given us the number. When you look at those who are self-identifying more as independent, I think that that narrative is getting a lot of watering by the philosophical conversations by guys like Crystal and the Bulwark and the -the on-the-ground work that's underway by individuals like Christine Todd Whitman who are saying to voters out there, Time out. Y'all need to panic. (laughs) There's something better. There's another way we can look at this. And that gets to your next question on January 6th. Liz Cheney has become an effective representation of some of that. I think it just opens up a whole different kind of conversation for us.
1: No, I think that's right. I want to ask you to follow up, but I just want to note the battle of ideas. There are no ideas on the other side, really. I think that's part of Trumpism. And so the problem is somehow raw emotions or, as Bill said, the sorts of things that emerge at 1130 in a bar is what seems to have risen to the fore. So how do you use ideas to beat back on what are really sort of dark sentiments?
2: Well, one of the things that I was just going to say that the other way that we're going about it with the States United Democracy Center is to partner with those who secretaries of state, state's attorneys general, other people who believe in our democracy democracy supporters and giving them the tools they need to push back against some of this legislation that's going through. In Alabama, they're basically giving the legislature the power to say, "Mm, we didn't like that outcome. So guess what? We're giving the electoral votes to whomever we want, which is just extraordinarily bad. And finding the language to reach people to say, look, this is what's happening. It's bad enough that these people are getting death threats, people who are just trying to do their job and administering elections but that you've got to hold these people accountable. Back to Michael's point in the very beginning, but to raise it in the public's interest in a non-partisan, cross-partisan, however you want to say it, it's a non-partisan organization. We're just trying to support those people that are pushing back against some of this. But what really scares me right now is redistricting, because I think that is going to have just an enormous impact on the Congress that we're going to look at next year.
1: Already is, right?
2: Yeah, it already is. And that's going to be hard to undo. Once you've started setting those lines in really partisan ways, it makes it that much harder unless you start to focus on the states, which is where the action is, in my opinion. And the way to reach people is forget the federal level. because that's so difficult for them to comprehend. But locally, that's where the action is, because the governors, the secretaries of states, and the state's attorneys general are the ones who can push back against some of the worst stuff that's going on and bring it to people's attention and hopefully start to energize people that this doesn't have to happen this way.
1: Although Team Trump is on that plan, too. Yeah,
2: they've been very good at it. They started a long time ago.
1: So, Bill, there's a doomsday scenario here. Yeah, it's not simply about the party and the survival, but it's about the republic. Right. And a scenario that the governor just averted to where January 6th becomes a dress rehearsal and they don't gain power legitimately and they somehow gain it illegitimately and we're looking like, you know, Turkey or fill in the blank. Not just the party, but the republic is in something of an existential crisis. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And
3: I say two things. January 6th, or really November 3rd to January 6th or January twenty. I think it's better to think of it that way. Everything that was done may turn out to have been a dress rehearsal for a more effectively engineered attempted coup with the groundwork having been laid at the state level and at the federal level without having last minute phone calls to secretaries of state and yeah. state legislators trying to do something for which they've never really prepared before. and They hadn't laid the groundwork. They are laying the groundwork. So that's very dangerous. And still, I don't think it will be an uncontested coup, on the other hand, the way people talk about it, is if the Democratic nominee carries Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania state legislature overturns it. Really? Are 5 million Pennsylvanians just going to quietly accept that? Honestly, it's a civil conflict scenario, I think, more than a successful coup scenario, though it could be both and it could be terrible in either case. So I'm not being cheerful here. So people are not sufficiently alert to that. I agree with that. You could have mobilizations in the streets on both sides. Make January 6th look like, a not to use the Nazi analogy, because everyone uses it and we shouldn't, I suppose, but it's the equivalent of 1923 versus 1932 or 33, right? A kind of a little thing that the historians note as the kind of footnote earlier attempt to the serious outbreaks of street violence and attempted destabilization and overturning of election returns. So I'm very worried about that. I don't think people are alarmed enough. We've each alluded to that. For me, I've been quite involved. And you have two, Harry, I think, and I guess all of us have in some ways in these voting rights and fair, free and fair election efforts on the Hill. But I had this argument with the Democrat yesterday in the Senate. I think it's insane. They've attempted to preserve voting rights against states' efforts to cut them back. That's good. They've attempted on the John Lewis thing to particularly address the issue of minority voting rights and restore some of the pre-Shelby decision status. The one thing they haven't done is introduce an electoral count reform act, mm. which is everyone mm-hmm. agrees is needed. We saw the kind of Rube Goldberg type ramshackle situation we inherited from back in 1887. It had gone on fine, really, pretty much for 100 and whatever 40 years because people acted in good faith and basically the situation was fine. Now it turns out when you stress the guardrails, they're not very strong. Fixing that really should be bipartisan, honestly, and I think has some chance of even being bipartisan, but it's certainly an easier thing to explain to people because that's what the crisis was, you know, and that, that can be fixed. And I think the Democrats were crazy, really, not to make that the lead item or one of the lead items. And they have complicated reasons why they held that one back. The other two had to go first. They don't want to mix it up. But meanwhile, we literally, we're sitting here on, what are we talking, December 17th? There has not been legislation introduced to repair the most obvious things that were screwed up and exploitable by Trump between November 3rd and January 6th of a year ago. That's kind of astonishing. I think if a historian came down from Mars and looked at this, what are you guys doing? You just saw this whole drill. It'd be as if some highway outside my window here collapsed. And everyone decided, you know what? I think we're also going to fix some other stuff 10 miles away. And I also have some ideas about some other programs I'd like to have. I'll get around to fixing the one that just collapsed. So the Democrats just don't quite have enough focus on the immediate and urgent task, I think. And then the American public gets kind of confused because, well, we're having another fight about, I don't know, same day registration or 15 days of early voting instead of 30. And none of that seems quite as fundamental preventing an election from being overturned by the state legislatures or by the House of Representatives.
1: I'll just say one quick point, which is I think the big lesson they've learned is to try to keep things out of the courts if they do it again, that the courts basically can be counted On and they've been slow to act necessarily, but pretty solid. But the different scenarios that scare me are just pure, raw chaos and political will by steering clear. That's the sort of Eastman plan, et cetera. Well, on a cheery holiday note, we only have time for uh, our final Talking Five feature, where we ask a question from a listener and we all have to answer in five words or fewer. And today's will be... What will Mike Pence be getting Donald Trump for Christmas?
2: An arsenic Lake Big
1: Mac. <laughs> Perfect. That was good. Wow, you're good for your debut too, Governor.
3: <laughs> Respect. I would say a lump of coal. I'd say a subpoena.
1: There you go. <laughs> I would love all those, but I fear it will be new pinky ring to kiss. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We are out of time. Thank you very much to Bill Kristol, Michael Steele, and Governor Christine Todd Whitman. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. And as you'll hear, we have a new level of Patreon coming at the beginning of the year that will include live question-and-answer sessions with me. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Olivia Henriksen, assistant producer Matt McArdle, sound engineering by Adam Macias, David Lieberman and Rosie Don Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistants by Ray Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. And our consulting producer is Dustin Canals. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Doledo LLC. I'm Harry Litman. Happy holidays to everyone and all good and better things to you and yours in 2022.